Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. Today, of course, is Labor Day and it's International Women's Day. And so we're delighted that Australian Council of Trade Unions President Michelle O'Neill can join us to speak about women and work. Um, Michelle was elected president of the ACTU in mid-2018. And in this role and throughout her career in the trade union movement, she's been vocal in her support of equality in the labor market and the tax system. And uh, Michelle, good morning. Welcome to 3 R. Hi, Kalia. Hi, Judith. Hello. And it's, Great to have you with and us. It's, yeah, and it's obviously it's not always um, Labor Day and International Women's Day, Michelle. And um, I guess I'm, I'm curious what's front of mind for you when you think about women and labour, women and work. Well, yeah, I, I do want to say happy Labor Day and happy International Women's Day to you both and to all the women out there but and all the men out there as well listening. But... Uh, when I think about it and the fact that these happening on the same day today, it's, it just strikes us how much more needs to be done. I mean, I, I'm shocked that in Australia in 2021 uh, that we're still facing a 13.4% gender pay gap, that we have this disgraceful situation where women who are harassed and assaulted at work don't have clear rights to be able to make complaints and have them investigated and have that done in a way where they're safe and know that there's going to be justice as an outcome. And also, of course, we've got a government that's trying to make things worse with uh, um, trying to introduce this industrialisation's new omnibus bus bill, terrible title, but what it does is actually cement inequality. It will make things worse for casual um, and part-time workers and particularly women workers. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's so many issues in there that I'd actually love to unpack a little bit more with you, Michelle. Um, but I mean, just because we are still just now starting to return many of us to workplaces, other people, of course, have worked through the whole pandemic, our frontline emergency workers and the like. I mean, when you think back over the past 12 months, um, do you, you know, have... Do you still feel that the pandemic has exacerbated some of the issues for women? And, and, you know, do you sort of see women in work this side of the pandemic and then pre-pandemic? Or how are you sort of thinking through what we're facing right now? Kalia, the way I think about it is that the pandemic exposed and in many ways cemented uh, what was happening as far as inequality for women at work that was had been in place and getting worse over many decades in Australia. So we've got one of the highest rates of casual and insecure work in the OECD and, um, and it's mainly women that are in those jobs and they're also more likely to be in the sort of frontline care jobs um, and have caring responsibilities at home. So when we saw what happened with the pandemic, we first of all saw those thousands of people who lost jobs overnight, people who were in insecure jobs who had nothing to fall back on, who literally could be sacked from one day to the other without anything in reserve because they didn't have any entitlements. 
And then we saw workers who were keeping on working but didn't have any access to paid sick leave or any other type of leave. So when they were needing to get tested or isolate or go into quarantine, they had nothing to fall back on. And, you know, the union movement, and we, we campaigned hard to win things like JobKeeper, which were really important. But, of course, there was a lot of people excluded from JobKeeper. And, again, when you look at that, it was a lot of women because it was workers who were casual workers who hadn't worked for more than 12 months in the one job. So the way I describe it is that COVID really shone a light on what's a problem that's a much deeper and longer problem for working women and we've got to make sure that we fight to change it. The thing about International Women's Day and Labor Day is that it's a great proud history of how we bring about change and that's what we want to focus on. Michelle, one of the things I was really aware of was the, the issue of childcare here, which, which affects women, of course, because we know there's lots of research to show us that women bear the responsibility of, of childcare. And, uh, of course, when um, you know, childcare is not available, uh, it, it means that they work less hours, and we see the result of that in less superannuation often and uh, high rates of homelessness among, among women. So it, it's a, a huge issue. But I was interested, there was that moment when everyone enjoyed free childcare, but it was so brief, it was so short. Um, how did that affect women, do you feel? Oh, you're right, Judith. It was such a fleeting moment, wasn't it? But what a difference it made because this is the key issue that impacts on so many women's ability to be able to get into work and stay in work. And, and be able to advance at work as well, whether you've got access to um, early childhood education and care for your kids. And the cost of that is is absolutely tied up with what I was talking about before, about the gender pay gap and the sort of jobs that women are in. And, and what we saw was when we had that moment of free childcare is what a difference it made. So it was shocking when it was ripped away so quickly. And, it, and the other thing that happened, of course, is that it was early childhood educators, the workers in our childcare centres, who were the first to be cut off JobKeeper as well. So it was a double whammy and it, and it recognises... It, what it showed is that we really undervalue both the importance of the work that's done by early childhood educators, but also of how important it is for women that we have access to free childcare. And it makes no sense to have started it and stopped it because it will actually cost the government nothing in the long run if they uh, put in place free childcare because it pays for itself because there's the lift in women's participation in work and how that works out in the tax system. So it's such a short term crazy blinkered idea to not have universal free childcare as a right for working women. Yes, and uh, and as you've just said, it, it, within that is the devaluing, I think, of women's work, which we see in the pay gap, we see in so many different areas. And also what we saw in the pandemic was it hurts everyone, you know, to diminish women in this way hurts all of us. And that's, you know, one of the reasons they had to introduce free childcare, they suddenly realized that, uh, you know, we need, we need women in work. Yeah, that that's right, Judith. And it is it's it's better for 
the whole society. Because the other thing about quality public childcare is that it, this is when our kids, uh, their brains grow the most in that first five years. That's when your development is uber-charged. It's, it's the moment when you learn how to socialise, when you, when you learn so much. So not only is it great for the society and for women to be able to ensure that women can properly participate in work, it's actually really good for our next generation to give them quality um, education and childcare. Uh, Michelle O'Neill's with us. She's ACTU president. And Michelle, the ACTU was critical of the, the 2020 budget on a number of fronts, including disincentives to hire older women. Has, is this something that is still of concern to you? Oh, it is. It, what, what the government has done, and, and really we saw what was um, we described as, as pretty much a bloke's budget when they um, had the budget last year at the, towards the end of the pandemic in October. Most of the measures in that budget were really designed to um, assist big business to start with, but even the measures that were meant to be targeted towards working people, things like this scheme, um, uh, the Job Maker Scheme, when you look at the detail of it, is is really badly designed because what it does is allow older workers to be displaced by younger workers um, and that doesn't make sense because we need to make sure we're saving and creating jobs for women and men as well as younger workers and older workers and of course again it it gave an, um, a bias towards the creation of short-term insecure and casual jobs where the employer was more likely to pick up uh, the um, subsidy if they were creating more insecure jobs rather than secure jobs, which has the same impact as well about disadvantaging women workers. The other thing we saw is that they, they put big money into tax cuts, again, for the very rich and big business. And if you look at where women's pay is, women much less likely to see the benefit of those tax cuts. And then they put money into things like the, remember the scheme where you can get your bathroom renovated if you've got quite a bit of money to begin with? Um, that's not good use of public money. We, sh- we should be putting public money into public good. And that means investing in things like services for health, um, aged care, uh, public housing. These are the things that if you spend money in that area, you're more likely to see the benefit for women as well as men, and you also see the long-term public good of it. I found it so interesting that you mentioned, uh, you know, the upgrading and the money to go in <laughs> for uh, fairly well-off uh, homes. I, I was looking at my little flat and thinking, yeah, you know, my bathroom could do with a bit <laughs> upgrade. <laughs> well, this, this could be all right. And then I thought, oh, no, not for me. <laughs> Sadly. <laughs> Michelle, do you think, um, I mean, I'm interested in the, the influence that the ACTU can wield in, in these sorts of areas. I mean, we saw the Royal Commission um, hand down its recommendations in aged care, for instance, and I know that there's, you know, question marks over whether that will deal with the casualisation of the workforce in that sector and and also, you know, um, whether, you know, we will continue to leave women behind, you know, financially in our tax system and things like this. I mean, can, you know, what steps can the ACTU take to to make a real difference here with advocacy? Are you feeling optimistic in in that area? Well, what what I'd say to start with uh, is that we know that 
women being organised is the thing that makes a difference and that we just have to look at our history about the things that we've won and it's working women coming together in unions and fighting for change that have won a lot of the significant um, changes that we rely on as women today. So we wouldn't have had, you know, in many cases the right to work, then the right to work and be paid the same, um, legally paid the same. I mean, we, we've still got the gender pay gap, but at the very least we've got that right that if you're doing the same job, you can't be paid less than the person working alongside you. We wouldn't have had things like paid parental leave. Yeah, we were one of the last countries to win that, but it was union women and working women standing up and fighting for it that won it. And when I look at things like the Aged Care Royal Commission and, uh, and the struggles we're in now against this government, IR omnibus bill that they're trying to bring in, um, there's women leading many of those struggles. The, the largest union in the country is the nurses union, the, the uh, nurses and midwives union, and that AMF is a union that has been very critical of the lack of um, the right ratios or the mix between how many workers in aged care you need compared to the number of residents there are. And that's not just nurses, but it's also the unions that represent the, the carers, the um, health services union, the United Workers Union, and the people that represent the people who do the cleaning and the cooking in aged care. So many of the recommendations in the Royal Commission came about because of powerful work that those unions have done to expose what what's wrong with that system and they're absolutely determined along with the ACTU to make sure that we see change in aged care and you know what, it gets back to that other issue about the undervaluation of women's work because it, you wouldn't have the sort of problems we've got in aged care if we had quality jobs because quality care comes from quality jobs and that means secure jobs where people are recognised for how hard and skilled that work is and paid properly for and I mean, look, there is a really dark cloud hanging over Parliament House right now in Canberra. And, um, you know, we hear that that is a workplace like no other. There's all sorts of commentary and really important discussions being had right now everywhere, really around um, scandal, um, sexual harassment and the like. And we do have, as you've mentioned a couple of times now, the Industrial Relations Bill before the Senate at the moment as well. I mean, what do you see might happen with that bill? And uh, you, you know, will we see it be passed in in these next few days of the, the Senate sitting, or, or what do you think might happen there, Michelle? Well, not if we can help it. Um, so, I mean, this is this is a bad bit of law. It's law that will entrench inequality. It'll make um, insecure jobs even worse in this country and allow for the cutting of people's pay and conditions at the very time when we need the opposite because it's not only good for women, not only good for workers um, and their families to have secure jobs and fair paying conditions. It's actually what's good for the economy and the recovery as well. Even the most conservative economics um, commentators are saying we need people to have confidence and certainty and money to spend and that's what helps small business and that's what help it, helps the economy recover. So if you have a piece of legislation that's going to do, that's designed to do the opposite, it'll have 
that effect, it'll be bad for everyone. So we're ha- campaigning hard to try and stop it coming in because um, it's not in, in our interest uh, for working, representing working people, but it's also not, as I said, in the interest of anyone as far as us recovering from COVID. Look, I, I mean, I think the, the issues around um, allegations of rape and harassment and systemic um, problems in terms of the rights of workers and particularly women when they've been harassed and assaulted in Parliament House and around the country um, is something that isn't going to go away. I think the government can't hide from this. Um, women won't let them hide from it. We're determined to make sure that the rights of people to be able to have the confidence of being able to complain if they've been assaulted or harassed or bullied and know that there's a fair process that will be independently investigated and where they won't be subject to vilification is such an important right across the country. So we've been campaigning for this for many years, but this moment, this moment of of denial is one that we will not let pass. Well, thank you for spending this moment with us, um, Michelle. It's really great to have you on 3RRR and um, all the best for the rest of um, Labor Day, but also International Women's Day. So good to talk to you, Kalia and Judith. And as I said, happy International Women's Day and happy Labor Day to everybody. Thanks so much. Um, And that's uh, ACTU President Michelle O'Neill. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. And now we're going to be speaking about Flesh After 50. It is a art exhibition, free exhibition and ticketed public event series underway right now at Abbotsford Convent. Um, the project focuses on older women which aims and aims to expose and challenge negative stereotypes as well as entertain and inform those of us that head along and interact with it. Martha Hickey is Professor of Obstetrics and Gynaecology at the University of Melbourne and the Women, Royal Women's Hospital. She's one of the driving forces behind Flesh after 50 and uh, she's also chairing a discussion later this month on menopause and it's really wonderful to have you on 3RRR. Martha, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's very exciting to be here, particularly on International Women's Day. And I mean, why did you want to explore issues of of women and women's bodies um, through art? Well, I'm a gynaecologist and my area of specialty is in menopause and uh, I realised that what I was hearing from everybody was how terrible menopause was and how it's, the women decay and they lose their oestrogen and they lose their fertility and it was a very negative message and I was worried for younger women because um, you're all going to have menopause and I felt that we needed to reflect the reality a bit more accurately and talk about the many positive things there are about uh, ageing in women. I mean, menopause comes at different times too, doesn't it, for different people? I know women who have, have gone into menopause in their, in their 20s, but generally speaking, it is that sort of around 50 um, age um, that, that women do start to go into menopause or, or get symptoms and so forth. Yeah, that's right. But there are a lot of women, maybe, um, maybe about uh, 10% of women, overall who experience menopause at an earlier age and for those women it's tough anyway uh, but it's made even tougher 
by the idea that they're um, becoming prematurely old as a result of going through menopause. And I think that's one of the issues we really wanted to tackle in this exhibition. Yeah, and so, I mean, tell us a little bit about what's part of Flesh After 50. I know that, you know, you've got the event coming up on menopause, but I'd love to sort of give, tell us, you know, give us a bit of a walk through the exhibition. What will people find if they head over to the Abbotsford Convent? Look, it's a pretty exciting program. Um, the exhibition itself is in a marvellous uh, gallery, which used to be the old laundries where women were sent uh, for bad behaviour or because they were orphaned or because they were pregnant and they worked for free in those laundries. So it's a, it's a great circularity, particularly on International Women's Day, to have um, an exhibition being held which is about women asserting their, their, their beauty and their importance. So what's going on is uh, an exhibition of more than 30 artists, different kinds of work, some photography, some sculpture, some video work, uh, all coming round to this theme about about older women. And Ponch Hawks' piece, 500 Strong, uh, is 500 individually taken photographs of naked women over 50 put together in one very large montage. And that's a particularly joyous um, thing to, to see. So in addition to the exhibition, which, as you say, thanks, is free, um, we also have a program running that includes arts events. Um, we have a film event, films around older women. Uh, we, have thing, we have events about the lives of artists. We have visual artists. Um, the aspect of the program I'm mostly involved with is the health program where, as you say, we're talking about menopause on one occasion, uh, but we're also talking about about our bodies. Um, we're lucky to have women from the from uh, Transgender Health Victoria also coming to talk about that. We're talking about safety, and we have women um, who run large programs around ensuring, protecting women from violence. Um, we have a special um, new piece called My COVID, which talks about um, the disproportionate effect of COVID and the lockdowns and how that's affected women. And we also have people um, talking about safety um, at work. So we're covering quite a large range of different subjects. Yes. And these are all free. Yes, and I, I went along last night, Martha, or yesterday afternoon, actually, yeah, to the writers' panel. Um, and just before I say, you know, who was speaking at the panel, I just want to say the feeling there was amazing. And watching people and, and looking at Ponch Hawk's photographs of, of naked women, you know, I, mean, I think that she was aiming for 500 and got 400. But there's such joy in the, in the photos yeah. and humor. Look, that's right. And the joy at the four, 400, 430 actually uh, was mm -hmm. because COVID kept shoving us down. We had women banging the doors down to participate. Yes, I missed out, actually. I, I, would, I think I saw something about it. Oh, I should do that. Then, oh, too late. <laughs> but, yeah, I'm not surprised. Uh, it's, it's really fantastic. And it also, you know, you have to take time looking at it because everyone right. portrays something different. And Ponch went out to Shepparton and to Geelong and brought in women from all across the state. So we we really wanted we really aimed to have as much diversity as we could to reflect the diversity in older women, just as there is diversity in women of every other age. Yes, and the beauty 
Absolutely, yeah. beauty, and the sculptures really show that, and the strength. Yeah, it was it was terrific. And of course, uh, last night was a writers' panel. Yesterday afternoon was a writers' panel. So we heard uh, Melanie Chang, who wrote Australia Day, Donna Ward. Did I dare not name? Well, she I dare not name, and Catherine Devaney, all discussing, um, you know, images of women, um, mm. in, you know, in novels, in the media, in popular culture. Yeah, so that and it was chaired by Amanda Smith, of course, ABC Radio National. It was a great night. Sounds like you had a really good time. I, I mean, I'm still excited. Oh, we've only, <laughs> well, just, this is like, we've uh, only just started. Yeah, I know. It goes for some days, doesn't it? And how many people have you already had through, Martha? I think about a thousand. Yeah, and it was. We, a, I mean, full house. We're COVID house. limited, so we had. Um, we were only able to have three fifty on the night where we opened the photograph. We made a decision that we would have an opening night, especially for the women who'd participated in 500 Strong. So they didn't have other people coming and looking at their images for the first time before they'd done it themselves. I love this um, idea too that people, you know, people are turning up and they've got, um, you know, many, like several weeks to do that and head along. And, I'm, you know, I'd love to take my mum and, you know, they, they, um, but I wonder, I mean, you sort of write in an essay in the program that, that you really set out to, to highlight issues around discrimination um, and also, uh, this sort of, I suppose, a fun fact, but um, a really profound one too, that this women over 50 will soon be the largest sector of society. Mm, in our ageing population, yeah. of course, women live longer than men. So um, rather than focusing on menopause, which is a relatively brief event, you know, as you say, normally in your 50s, we need to think about the one third to one half of your life that you live after that. Absolutely. And uh, again, that, you know, was so clear, I guess, in, in both the exhibition and also the people that were there. And one of the things I really noticed was the way older women in particular and what, what's older. I mean, that's always, you know, a uh, question, hey, you're not really sure or what, you know, whatever. But the women who were there, the way they caught each other's eyes as they were looking at the different images, the sculptures, the way women looked at each other and I felt recognized themselves and recognized this as a celebration of who they were. That really struck me. And they've got a lot to say, you know, because nobody has actually asked about this before. This is the first time um, that there's ever been an exhibition in the world that's focused on older women in their bodies. Wow, that is really something. And, and I mean, Martha, I understand you really drove this idea. And, and as I introduced at the beginning, um, we're speaking with Professor Martha Hickey and, and she um, uh, works with the Royal Women's Hospital and also at the University of Melbourne as an obstetrics and gyne- uh, works in obstetrics and, and gynaecology. And, I mean, did you ever imagine that with that training that you would work in art in this way? Oh, look, I haven't worked in art. I, what I've done is had some suggestions and some ideas, and the artists have just taken them and made these m- made these things. So it's it's a it's a, it's a lot of learning for me. But I think I just um, for my work in menopause, I just got fed up with just hearing constant negative messages. And I have a daughter who's twenty one, 
I don't want her to grow up thinking this terrible thing's going to happen to me. Yeah, man, there's a lot of fear around it too, isn't there? I mean, I've got friends at the moment saying, I think this is menopause. I'm not sure. Why do I feel this way? Like the, all of this confusion of what am I looking out for and what's it going to be like for me? And is it going to be terrible like it was with my friend or my mother? Or is it going to be easy? Like I just one day I have a hot flush and tomorrow I wake up and it's fine. Like that uncertainty, I guess, is, is there for women. I think it is, but part of that is about discourse and also about recognition of normality. If we talked about these things and you knew what happened to a range of women, good things and bad things, and also if you were in the workplace and you had, say, had a hot flush and you could say, just hang on a second, just having a hot flush, that would take a lot of the fear out of this. Well, you can um, catch um, Professor Mark Hickey uh, chairing a panel on um, menopause. It's part of Flesh After 50. Um, it is a free exhibition on at the Abbotsford Convent. There's a ticketed public event series that goes with it. Very much commend you to go to the fleshafter50.com website so you can see um, what you can get along to. And the event is coming up on the 20th of March that Martha is part of. But um, I can just already, um, just your experiences there. Yeah, Judith yeah, makes yes. me want to go. Yep. Yeah, go. Yeah, please go. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank, okay. thank, yeah. And great. And thanks for doing this on International Women's Day. It's really important. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. There's a new documentary coming up. It's um, going to premiere on Sunday, March 14th at 8pm on ABC TV and also screening as part of the Melbourne Queer Film Festival. The film is called Why Did You Have to Tell the World? and it features Francesca Curtis and Phyllis Papps, the first lesbian couple to come out on national television in 1970. AP is the director and a documentary maker from Melbourne. Welcome to Triple R AP. Hey, thanks so much for having me. It's great. It's such a pleasure to have you. And I'm just wondering if you can begin begin by just telling us about the women who are featured in Why Did She Have to Tell the World, Francesca Curtis and Phyllis Papps. Sure. So uh, Phyllis and Francesca are recorded as the first lesbian couple to come out on national television in 1970 um, on a program called This Day Tonight, um, which was hosted by Bill Peach at the time. So Phyllis and Francesca are also noted as women of the first Australasian lesbian movement in Australia, which was noted as the first homosexual political party in the country. So, um, yeah, in October 1970, they came out on ABC TV. And basically the documentary follows their courage, their activism, and also their 50-year relationship in the lead-up to the marriage equality debate. It's an amazing story, and I'm just wondering, how did you come to it? How did you meet this story? Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a crazy, crazy story. Um, I was I met Phyllis and Francesca about three years ago. Um, I was finishing my graduate year at Swinburne University, and I was researching um, a lot about queer history at the time, and I stumbled across their story, and I thought it was incredible. Um, and... I think a archivalist at the at the centre actually told Phyllis and Francesca that I was reading about their story, and they actually found me. So they kind of flew into my email inbox one day and saying that they would love to meet me, um, and that started a three three year relationship with them. Um, and then once I met them, um, me and my producer Bonnie Scott, we decided to. Uh, 
um, we wanted to make a documentary about their experience of coming out nationally in the 70s and their 50-year relationship, and that's how it sort of started. So they, they found me, which yes. is a, kind of a weird way to put it. Yes, and how did you feel? I mean, I'm just can you just describe your first meeting with them? Oh, yeah, it was... It was surreal to say the least. I mean, I mean, for so Phyllis and Francesca live in Phillip Island, which is a little um, a little town called Rill, which is off the coast of Victoria. And um, so, for the first year, we were we were more so like pen pals. So we were calling each other and sending emails and letters and things like that. Um, and then we finally decided to meet, and we drove me and Bonnie drove down to their little cabin in Rill, which is this kind of secluded fishing town, and. Although I was, you know, uh, I guess a bit nervous, I, I felt like I had known them for so long. I, they'd been a, their life had been a part of my life for so long that we just grew this instant connection, which is it, which is normal for people in the community, whether you're 50 years apart or five years apart. It was just a friendship that blossomed from straight away. Yes, well, that's, I mean, it must have been amazing. I can just imagine it. And also seeing some of the footage, uh, you know, you're just in there just a little, just a little bit there. Yeah, just yeah. a little bit here and there. Yeah, which I, which I loved. Um, but, you know, one of the things that's very rich about this film is the archival material. I'm wondering, how did you go about sourcing it? Yeah, yeah. Um, so basically, um, it was it was a really big process of collecting archival material through Phyllis and Francesca themselves. So Phyllis and Francesca um, are both researchers and writers, and so they've hoarded a lot of things over the year, which was which was great for us. Um, they kept all their photos and their footage and and kind of their their history, I guess. And not um, to but, jump in know, on the flow, but I actually loved seeing their kind of. DVD collection and things like yeah. this because so many people don't have that anymore, you know? Like, it's, yeah, it's just yeah. on the computer. No, they, and so this idea... Yeah, no, they keep everything. Let, they me, keep let everything. me show you through my digital photo library. It doesn't kind of have the same <laughs> ring to the, the phot- phot- photographic, um, you know, albums and so forth. <laughs> no, no, it doesn't. But, it, you know, also working with the ABC, um, ABC is one of the largest archives in Australia. So they were really helpful in finding um, the original footage of the women coming out on television, which was obviously a massive pivotal point for the film. Um, we worked with a lot of other feminists, um, including Barbara Creed, who had a massive amount of archival footage. Um, and so I went to her house and I visited her, which was amazing. And actually, one of the first things she said to me when we were looking through our archival material and nothing was dated and everything was kind of everywhere. And, and she goes, I'm so sorry. We just, we just thought, who are we to have a history? We never thought no one was going to dig up this so we never you know so that that put a really big stint in the film we thought well we got to tell the story now you know so yeah it was a big it was a big effort from everyone to to grab every piece of archival we could find yes and that was such a fabulous quote you know who are we to have a history you know yeah Uh, just so so moving and 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 such a statement and of course Of course, this history is so important. I'm wondering, you mm-hmm. must have you must have watched that the footage of their appearance mm. on ABC TV's this day tonight's show. I mean, it's a it's a quite a powerful point, I think, in the film itself. And um, I just, how what was your feeling in it when you saw it, <laughs> saw that for the first time? Um, it was honestly, it was quite daunting. I mean, I think as a young queer person, you forget. Like, you forget that those things happened. And, you know, as, as a queer young person, I will never have to experience what Phyllis and Francesca did. Um, but it's so important to remember and to retell these stories. And I remember watching it for the first time and thinking, oh, my God, I, I got in the car, I drove over to my producer's house, Bonnie, and we sat in her kitchen and watched it together with cups of tea. And we just thought, 
how are these questions being asked, like these, these, you know, just things that would never happen today, but it was such a pivotal moment for lesbian women who were still in the closet to kind of watch TV and think, oh, my God, there's somebody like me. That's, that's, incre- that's incredible. So it was daunting, I think, the first time I watched it, and, and a little bit, not funny, but a little bit just like, you know, laughing to, to think that that ever happened. But um, it, it, it's something that, that 15 minutes of TV changed the country changed the course of history and it changed their lives too and I mean they do speak about acceptance and Mm -hmm. I wonder I mean how do you reflect on that you said it's you know it's quite different now to in 1970 when that interview took place on national television Mm -hmm. what's your reflection Mm -hmm. on acceptance today Oh, gosh, that's a big question. But Sorry I think, <laughs> no, no, totally fine. I mean, it's, re- it's really, really interesting because, you know, the film became more so about the importance of acceptance in mm-hmm. Phyllis and Francesca's lives and the lives of everybody in the community. And I think that's the message the film holds. But, you know, I think if Phyllis and Francesca have taught me anything, they've taught me how to accept people in my life. And I think that although we have some ways to go and there are still things that... Um, you know, we still, as a community, need to fight for, you know, trans rights, uh, disabled queer rights, um, you know, black lives in the queer community. There's still so many things that we need to pinpoint. But I think looking at acceptance, it gives you that flare of hope that things are going to be fought for and they're going to win, if that makes sense. And I think that's what the film taught me. Yes, and, the, and that really comes across, I think. And it is such an intimate film. I mean, I really did feel like I was sitting down with Francesca and Phyllis myself in their front room looking at photograph albums. And I'm wondering, how did you achieve that intimacy, that, that connection? Mm. Mm. It was, it, it's really interesting. Um, you know, I saw the women on the weekend because it was Francesca's 90th birthday, um, which was amazing. Um, but... I mean, this is a hard. This is a hard thing for any documentary maker, especially young documentary filmmakers. Um, and sometimes, you know, stories don't get made because that connection between the director and the subject isn't there, and you have to respect that. But I think with Phyllis and Francesca, that connection was always there because we we saw parts of each other in each other, and I think it came from a very um, not just like a close bond, but also a very honest and transparent relationship. You know, there was things that Phyllis and Francesca would confide in me about and, you know, keeping them in the loop about the, about the film. And I think documentary is going to have a, a big revolution in that sense where subjects become more to the forefront and telling their own stories because it isn't my story to tell. It is Francesca and Phyllis's story. But keeping things transparent and open um, is something that it comes down to trust. It really comes down to trust and um, you have to understand that you're taking someone's life story and putting it on screen and that's a really, really big responsibility. AP, con- congratulations. And it is screening as part of the Melbourne Qu- Queer Film Festival, um, which is running as we speak. I think we're just about to kick off and also mm-hmm. um, on ABC TV. So there they are again on national TV um, coming up (laughs) this weekend um, at 8pm on on Sunday. And um, congratulations. It's wonderful that you've made it, but also that it is going to be seen so widely. Awesome. Thank you so much for all the love and and for, for watching it. Thanks so much, um, AP director, writer of the documentary, Why Did She Have to Tell the World? It's an extraordinary uh, short film. Um, you, you can catch on the telly, but also at the MQFF uh, and very much um, commend it to you. 
Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.